All right, let me, uh, let me pray for us before we jump in. Uh, Father, uh, we're so thankful that you, you are faithful, even in the, the hardest of times um, and in the strangest of times. And uh, right now in this season as a church, um, especially as we look at First Peter and understand kind of the experience of, of strangeness, of being strangers, of feeling like exiles, um, Lord, we know that we belong to you and we're called to be a, a city within a city and a, a kingdom culture within the wider culture. And I just pray that, especially this morning as we look at a few just key things on how to do that well, that you would, um, you would just apply it to our heart, that uh, you would challenge us uh, in the ways that we need to be challenged, that you would convict us in the ways we need to be convicted, and also you would encourage us and just speak, speak peace to us and compassion to us that only comes through your gospel. Uh, we love you. We invite you into this time. Ask that it would make much of you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so, so last week, as, as you know, I, unfortunately, sorry, we didn't get a recording of last week's audio or video, and I apologize uh, for that. We're going to try our best to make sure technology works for us this week and get an actual recording. But if you remember last week, as we're continuing in First Peter, uh, what, what we got to look at and we leaned into is the, just the posture of being servants and specifically slaves of God? What does it look like to be a slave of Christ? And what does true freedom look like in the gospel living with God as our, as our true master? A master that won't kind of um, live with a, an authoritarian hand, but one that will actually free us and love us and lead us to flourish. And so we spent some time doing that and looking specifically at discipleship and following Jesus from that vantage point. And as you know, Peter, as we've gone through this series, what, what Peter's been doing for us, he's, he's been tracing, kind of just sketching out holiness and, and what holiness looks like. And, and that holiness isn't a, a subcategory of morality. It's not kind of a, a super spiritual posture, but instead holiness is, is nonconformity, right? Holiness is, is resistance to kind of the social and ethical norms of the wider culture. And, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Peter is drawing on that a lot just to kind of show us what this kind of countercultural thing looks like as the people of God. And so what he's going to do today, what we're going to lean into, and again, remember, this is broad strokes. Like if we were going to do each thing that Peter says deeply, we would have to spend a year uh, just wrestling with First Peter here. So we're just kind of like going to hit a few verses today. But what he's going to do for us today is he's going to specifically continue to shift us into the how do we do that? So, so here's the what is like holiness as nonconformity, holiness as resistance. But now he's going to shift to show us that holiness isn't just resistance and nonconformity, but that holiness is also engagement, right? So we're called to disengage from certain things that don't line up with the God we know and the kingdom values that he embodies. But then we also are called as holiness is a, a engagement of culture. It, it's actually a engaged nonconformity. It's not just a, a disengagement and nonconformity and resistance, but it's also now a movement towards culture to, to, to expose them to the, the beauty of the gospel as it's lived out and through the church. And so there's this tension for us, and this is always a tension for the church in every generation and in every culture is how do we remain distinct from wider culture, but simultaneously engage culture? How do we live with an alternative moral 
spiritual, social vision of life, but then also engage a culture that doesn't have that well? How do we steward that responsibility well? And if you feel uncomfortable with that question, it's good. That's a good thing. Because the church in every generation has had to wrestle with this and always will until the kingdom truly culminates and there is a new heaven, new earth. We have to wrestle with the key uh, um, relationship, the key kind of junction between Christ and culture. And and how do we do that? How do we understand the intersection of these two things? So we're gonna try to get a little practical near the end today on a few things that I think we really need to see and and, and look at because especially as exiles today, um, how how do we live on mission as exiles? Like how do we engage culture as strangers? Now evangelism and mission definitely looked different in the West 20 years ago. You could have an evangelistic crusade. You could put on a service. You could have a concert. And what would happen? Well, people would come. People would come to that thing. And then you had an opportunity to to share the gospel. But mission as exiles now means we're not the center that everyone gravitates towards. We're actually on the margins and at the periphery. So how do we live as missionaries, but as exiles? As strangers, but stewards, of the the culture and the places and the spaces that God has given us. Even as exiles, and this is really important, okay? I just wanna start with this and then we'll jump in. Even as exiles, church, we have to understand, despite being exiles and being pushed to the margins, the church is still called to live as witnesses. We're still commanded with the same great commission that Jesus gave his first disciples, to not just disengage, but to actually go, to actually go into culture, to go and missionally engage as exiles. So just because you and I feel that this real tension, that ground has been lost, right? Kind of in the culture, it's like, oh man, we're losing, we're losing ground as the church. I, oh, I feel like the church's values and the Christian values are being swallowed up by the cultural ethic. You know, we feel that, like that's definitely how we feel. But just because we feel that doesn't mean that you and I get to punt on the responsibility that we have to engage culture missionally as exiles. So holiness, when when Peter's kind of parsing it out for us, holiness definitely means disengagement. It means resistance, but it also means engagement. It also means leaning in. It also means confrontation of certain things in a loving, compassionate way. With the, with the gospel, that, that's what holiness is wrapped up. So it's, it's kind of two sides of this same coin, all right? So here's what Peter's gonna do for us this morning. He's gonna highlight two spheres where this happens. He's gonna show us what this looks like inside the church and our relationships inside. And then he's gonna show us what it looks like outside the church. He's gonna show us what it looks like within the body. And then he's gonna show us what it looks like outside the body, all right? So we're gonna take a look. Let's start in verse uh, eight of chapter three. So First Peter three, it should be up here for us. There we go. All right, here's what Peter says, finally. So he's starting the last section of his letter. So he's taking everything that he's unpacked and he's gonna apply it. And he said, finally, all of you should be of one mind. It's united, there's unity. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. 
Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with blessing. That is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, and Peter's quoting Psalm 34 here. If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace, pursue peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face away from those who do evil. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak, the Greek is actually when people speak against you, when they do, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. All right, now there's a lot in there. Um, but here's what Peter is getting at. He is talking to a church in a context where the culture was, was brutal. Like okay, so we're talking about the Roman Empire here. We're talking about a brutal, merciless culture. There's a, a famous Roman saying in the first century, mercy is the disease of the soul. Okay? So, so understand that in their context, Christians are being slandered and criticized because they're weak, according to the culture. Because there they're, they're, they're are people about mercy, but mercy is weakness. There are people about compassion, but that's not how you win, right? And so there's all these ethics, all these values that Peter is kind of wrapping up in this. And contextually, Peter is saying, don't look for a, um, approval of, of what you're doing as good from a culture that doesn't know what good is. Don't look for approval about what is good from a culture who calls good evil and evil good. And so, so he's saying, keep going. Lean in. Keep doing good. Keep loving. Keep being humble. Keep being compassionate. Don't clap back with insults when insults come. Don't revile and slander when you are reviled and slandered. Keep going. So notice Peter mentioned suffering several times throughout this passage. Why? Because this is a call for perseverance. It's a call to keep going. The things that you're doing, the, the, the humility you're seeking, the gentleness, the compassion, the love that you're striving to display, keep going. See, in the first century, everywhere you went as a Jew in the early church, you would see Roman legionnaires everywhere. It was a police state there was militarized zones all chopped up. Uh, they would just come and ju they just take your, your real estate. They would just take your farms. They would just take your homes. They would just take your property. Uh, they would oppress you. You had family members and, and friends that, that were just being entirely oppressed and, and arrested, if not executed. The tax rate was 80 to 90% for non-citizens of Rome. Like talk about just surviving. And Peter says what he says. 
about a cultural moment that is entirely bent towards and against this kind of ethic of the people of God. And I think Peter right here, again, he's like, it's a cute conjecture that we get to do. But I honestly think Peter is recalling Jesus's crazy revolutionary idea of enemy love here. Don't just love your neighbors, love your enemies. This is one of the most radical things Jesus ever said, that that enemy love is the way of the kingdom. That enemy love is the way that people are exposed to the God who loved his enemies and came and saved them. And that, that love is not just love that we can kind of conjure up. That love is only found in Jesus. In Luke 6, Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who insult you. You know who you can't hate and be resentful towards? People you pray for. <laughs> you can't. It's impossible. Praying for people that are against us. Praying for people that, that really are our enemies. Praying for people that have hurt us that have actually, I mean, with their words and their actions, have deeply wounded us. Praying for them is the only way to see that uprooted from the soil of our heart. To have that bitterness and those things pulled out so that enemy love isn't just something we kind of say. I know we just kind of say it, right? And then we're like, Jesus, that's a cool idea, but eh, I don't know. It's a little revolutionary for me. But the kingdom ethic looks at these, these enemies, real enemies, who happen to be neighbors and says, love, love neighbor and enemy. Pray, pray for enemy. Pray, pray for neighbor. Love your neighbor, but love your enemy. It is so radical. It's so revolutionary. And honestly, it's a bit ridiculous. It's a bit ridiculous to, to, for that to have been said, for that to ag- actually have been the gospel kind of thing that in the first century, it's crazy. And so what Peter's doing here though, is he's showing us like, Enemy love and, and not responding and living reactionary to, the, to threats and insults and ridicule, it doesn't mean agreeing. It doesn't mean overlooking evil. It doesn't mean not pursuing justice. It doesn't mean being a doormat. None of that. I think so, so, so often we've looked at enemy love as just kind of accepting things as they are and being abused for the sake of Jesus. And it's like, that's, that's not what's happening here. But what it does mean is it does mean not retaliating. It does mean that we're, we're, not, we're called to not harbor resentment and anger. And we're called to pray. We're called to actually pray for those who oppose us. And Peter specifically says, don't repay evil with evil. I, I think today for us, that's, you know, practically if we think about like, what does that look like? I think that means don't respond with one Facebook post with another, right? Don't respond with a passive aggressive action to another. Uh, don't respond with silent treatment and 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 sarcasm with another. Don't respond to, to ridicule with, with another, right? And, but, but what's the flip side of that? He says, bless. Bless. Don't respond with, with evil. Don't respond with, with slander and insults. Why? Well, well, bless. That means speak well of somebody. That means giving the benefit of the doubt. That means looking for, even if there's not much, the, the, the one thing that you can celebrate about somebody. Find it and speak good of them. Find it and, and, and celebrate it and highlight it. That's what it means to, to bless somebody, right? Why can we do this as the church? I think that's what I've been wrestling with this week. Why can we do this? Why don't we need to respond with slander and insults and threats and evil? Why? why? Well, because we don't need 
to prove ourselves when we've already been justified. We don't need to prove ourselves to a culture when we've already been justified by the God of heaven. We don't need it. So if we're not looking for approval, we're not looking to kind of prove ourselves to them because we already have all the approval that we ever need in the work of Christ and in who he says we are, then you and I actually don't need to respond the same way that somebody else would. We don't need to. We get to respond so differently to these kinds of things. And Peter underlines several, in several ways here, compassion. Uh, some English translations will say, say like a tender heart. That always reminds me of the Care Bears, right? Like just like, ah, tender heart, love coming out of my belly, you know? Um, but, but a tender heart. In, in Greek, it's, it's compassion. It's, it's compassionate. Uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul says something similar where he says, be kind to each other, be tender hearted, be compassionate. Forgive one another as God forgave you in Christ. And so, so it's interesting that compassion here is rooted always in how God has been compassionate towards us. And forgiveness towards others is, is in response to how we have been forgiven. And love for enemy is based on and built on God's love of enemies, including you, including me. And so our compassion for others flows out of that. And I honestly think so often in, in scripture, it's stressed that you and I as the church need to be compassionate with each other because we haven't figured that part out yet. And I think if we learned to actually be compassionate and love one another, that inside the church, we would have a greater impact outside of the church. If we practice this better here, in the body, we would have a greater impact out there outside the body. And, and Jesus' whole teaching in John 13 is the same thing. He's saying, love one another. Why? Because it's your love for one another that will what? People will recognize that because it's different. It's rooted in, in the nature and character of God who's, who's different. He's matchless. He's above all. He, he's, he's more beautiful. He's more true than anything, any definition of compassion and mercy and love. And so often in scripture when you see compassion or tenderhearted or whatever word we end up using for that, it's usually followed by and. So it's like, be compassionate and. And so very, very seldom will you just see compassion being a feeling. It's just kind of like, I feel compassionate. Like just be compassionate. It's usually be compassionate and, almost always, it's followed by action. It, it's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's not thoughts and prayers, you know? <laughs> like, like it's compassion that actually leads to, to action. It's a, it's a heart level, like it's a gut level thing that leads to action. And honestly, when Jesus experiences it, it's like a gut level sadness that leads to loving action. And it's really, I mean, it's weird when, when Greek and Hebrew does this, but Greek and Hebrew will also, also, um, often use like body parts, as, as metaphors for feelings. And so right here, the literal Greek word for, for uh, like sympathizing here is intestinal health, right? So it's like have healthy intestines. You're like, uh, okay, I don't know. But, but do you see how that, the point of that is though, there's like a gut level visceral like, ugh, to compassion. That you can't not do something if compassion is where it's coming from. The most repeated emotion that Jesus has in the New Testament is compassion. 
that he's compassionate, that he looks upon the crowds and he's, he has compassion for them, that he looks upon the people and he looks upon a whole city and he has compassion for them and then he acts out of that. The most powerful display of the gospel is that we, as the people of God, we as the church, are shaped by compassion and then we act on it. Not how well we can argue people into the kingdom, not how many theologians we can quote, not how much we can dismantle the secular worldview, not, none of that, but compassion. Love for, for, for people inside and outside the church. A love that's rooted in selfless giving. A love that's rooted in the love that we have in Christ. Um, I, I heard Pastor Kyle Eidelman recently say, when people begin to witness our compassion, they will begin to care about our convictions. When people actually experience our compassion, they will begin to care about our convictions. And church, I think we've got this backwards. I think so often we've thought that our convictions and arguing and debating and getting the right ideas into people's minds is the way that people are gonna see the beauty of King Jesus. But it's actually the other way around. The reason why we act compassionately is because of our convictions. But if we're not showing and displaying the beauty of the God that we worship, then people are never going to get to the point of even wanting to understand our convictions. And what Peter's doing here, I really do think, is he's, he's trying to root this in this broader kind of sense of mission of not mission being kind of like quantitatively something we can like have a metric of success about. But instead, he's saying the metric of success is actually a relational thing. It's a felt experience. It's not, it's not metrics of like what you are accomplishing out there. It's not numbers of prayer cards written or people that have said a prayer at the front. That, that, that's not actually the metric, but the metric is compassion and, and love. And then our convictions actually come into the conversation with people who see that, who experience the gospel, the good news, as it's lived out through the people who are shaped by that good news. And moving on, Peter says, seek peace. Flowing out of that, he's like, seek, seek peace and do good. And these are like really simple things that you can breeze over so quick, right? We're just like, seek peace, do good. I like that. All right, next, right? But, but, but what Peter's doing, like seek peace and do good, he's, he's quoting Psalm 34, which is a, a great psalm. You can read it as homework this week. But what he's also doing that you can miss is he's drawing on a key passage in Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah is, you know, he's often called the weeping prophet because that guy had, that guy had it tough, right? Like that is, he is a prophet. I mean, he wrote Lamentations, like, a whole book just of him like crying about stuff, right? Like, so Jeremiah had it, had it rough. And Jeremiah writes a big section of Jeremiah as an exile, literal, as a literal exile to the community in exile, okay? And in Jeremiah 29, as an actual exile, here's the thing, here's the words that are penned, okay? It's gonna, it's gonna be up there for you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, he says to all the captives that he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. They're in exile. And here's what God says. Build houses and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food that those gardens produce. 
marry and have kids. Then find spouses for your kids so that they may marry and that you have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. Increase, do not decrease. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pause for a second. Underline that, highlight it. Work for the peace of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for the city, and for its welfare, because it's in its welfare that you will find your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This passage is so counter everything that we would think about when we think about being in exile. When we think about being in exile, all we're thinking of is like, hey God, rescue me, get me out of here. Get us out of here. And God actually speaks to Israel and says, settle in. You're gonna be there for a while. And they are. They end up being there for 70 years. And so there's people who die in exile. And that's exactly why God is speaking to Israel saying, build houses, plant gardens, have kids, because you're not gonna survive this. This is about thinking forward. This is about mission for the future. So be faithful now so that there's fruitfulness in the future. Okay, and that's so, so radical when you're talking to exiles because he actually says, seek the peace of the city. Now remember, for you and I, we don't, we don't hate our city, right? Like you and I don't have a disdain towards whatever our neighborhood is. It's like, oh, I hate Pancor, right? Like I just hate it here. Um, we hate, I hate Montreal, but I'll tell you right now, when you're in exile and you've seen family members kidnapped and killed, you grow a serious resentment and bitterness towards the powers that be. And instead of allow the people of God to harbor a sense of superiority towards the city, to make culture the enemy, God is speaking to Israel in exile saying they are not the enemy. As a matter of fact, he shifts their attention and says, some of your prophets and teachers are the enemy because they're lying to you. And what's really crazy about that passage, and we don't have time, but I'll just tell you, Netflix just grabbed a hold of a documentary called The American Gospel, which, first of all, is amazing that Netflix even put that on. Uh, go watch it before it gets taken down, okay? It's called The American Gospel, and it is a terrific documentary. I don't tend to like Christian media things, especially documentaries and movies. Um, this one is excellent. And what it's doing is it's just really calling out a lot of the false teaching and false teachers, they're speaking to the church right now in our generation and lying to us. And the same thing was happening in exile with Jeremiah where there was prophets, self-proclaimed prophets saying, God is gonna, okay, God is about you being happy and healthy and wealthy. Don't worry, he's going to get us out of this. But Jeremiah is telling them, no, no, but, he, but he's not. He's not yet. Your hope is future hope. God is gonna redeem, but, but in his timing. And in his way, not by blessing you and healing you and, and doing all the things that you think God should do. He's going to do everything that he knows to do because he's, he's the Lord. And so there's false teachers 
telling them, no, 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 the city, it's evil. Culture, it's evil. Don't settle in. God's gonna bring you back to the promised land. And instead, God shows up and speaks through Jeremiah and says, settle in. Seek the well-being of your city. Seek peace in your city. Increase, don't decrease. Move in and engage, don't disengage. That's, that's mission. That's, that's what this looks like. And for, for most of us, our city is not something that we think of like this, right? I mean, guilty. Usually when we move into a community, move into a neighborhood, what we think about is what can I get from this neighborhood? What amenities, what, what services, what, what activities can I, can I use? What things can I benefit from in this community? Uh, some of us get jobs or have careers and we move into a place and immediately we're thinking about what can this place offer me? This, this posture of actually being exiles and strangers means that we move into a community and we don't say, what can the community offer me? We look and say, how can we be peace and seek the welfare of this place? What can we offer the city? That we're, we're not tourists who come and just consume what the city has to offer, but instead we make it home. And then we, we move outwards and we love the, the community. As resident aliens, as elect exiles, we invest in the city. We invest in the welfare and good of the city. Now, for some of us, uh, we don't, we don't want to do that. Right? Like, it's just like, I don't, I don't want to. Or I, I don't even, I don't really feel like I care enough to want to do that. I'm just trying to like slug it out and survive. But that's the beauty of this community call. That if this is happening internally, for those of us who are tired, we need to be cared for. Amen. Like we, we need to be cared for in the church. Why? So that the church as a community can be, like Jesus says, a city set on a hill. That we're a city within a city, right? Uh, Rodney Stark, who's a historian, writes a book about the rise of Christianity and how crazy just like this explosion was. And watch what he says about what the church was doing. Are we gonna share that? Is that up there? I think it is. All right, I'll read it, ready? To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope to cities filled with newcomers and strangers christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment to cities filled with orphans and widows christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family to cities torn by violent ethnic strife christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity and to cities faced with epidemics fires and earthquakes christianity offered effective nursing uh, services. Now this has always been, historically, what the church has done very well. Everything that we get to enjoy today, we don't have time, but every t everything we get to enjoy about our, our kind of Western welfare feeling here in, in, in our culture is because somebody, somewhere, motivated by the compassion of Christ, went and did something about it. And, and that's what our society is built on. And so what, what Rodney Stark is pointing out is what Peter is calling for, is that we are not supposed to look for what we can get from our city, but there is something revolutionary about the church looking at how can we serve and love the city and seek the welfare. Why? Because if we seek the welfare of our community, God promises to be about ours, that he's gonna take care of us. We don't need to look, look out for our own because we have a God that already does. 
And then so Peter stresses this, kind of like the action part of it. It's like, like this is what we have to do. This is our posture. This is the action. Then he shifts to the speech. So he talks about the nonverbal aspect. And now he shifts to the verbal aspect of what this looks like. So a little bit later in verse 15 and 16, I'll read it for you again. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. Usually this verse is used as like um, an apologetics thing of like, here's how to argue and defend the faith. Ultimately though, I think this is doing a little, something a little bit different. I think right here in this passage, Peter's saying that that nonverbal piece of compassion and being ser- serving this city and being for the city, if that's not happening, no one's gonna ask you for a reason for the hope that you have, right? Like if you're not doing anything, no one's gonna ask you why you're doing it. And so, so Peter's saying like, if we live like this, inevitably people are gonna start asking questions. That our compassion is going to lead people to wanna hear about our convictions. And be ready to explain why we're doing what we're doing. Like the modus operandi, like the why behind the what. Be ready to explain that. Be ready, but do it with gentleness and respect. And that gentleness word is, is meekness. It's the same word that Jesus uses for, for meekness. It's to do it with, with humility. And, and I think what we've lost today culturally, honestly, is that you and I don't need to agree with someone to respect them. We don't need to agree with someone's position to respect them as a person. And even more, we don't need to agree with somebody's position to love them as a person. We don't. And culturally, we don't know what that means anymore because we're lost in a, a toxic, hyper-emotional, politicized conversation. And it's like we don't even know how to have any other type of conversation. And our culture is uh, honestly so just overwhelmed with trigger warnings and safe spaces that you and I as the church, we have a responsibility and I would say a call that we must learn how to speak about the gospel both truthfully and respectfully. Truthfully, as in non-compromising, but also respectfully so that it's done in a loving fashion for people and about people as, as whole people, holistically. And I think one of the most effective witnesses the church can have, and I think this is what Peter is doing, is that even when we do talk about something, we talk about it differently. Our posture is different. The why is different. One of the most effective witnesses that Literally, you and I, like now practically at Reach Montreal, you and I as followers of Jesus in our cultural moment is that we need to practice being a non-triggered, non-toxic people in a triggered and toxic environment. And that, 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 ex, that expands out into how we use social media, what we post and what we don't post, how we talk to people at work, how we approach our neighbors, how we speak to people who, again, think, live, and act very differently than us. It must. And I think that's why Peter does this, that he, he stresses the nonverbal piece, but then he says this also involves a proclamation, that the gospel, the word gospel is good news. It's an announcement. It's an announcement of something that has already been done. It's us running around telling people what God has already accomplished in Christ for sinners who repent and turn to him. 
And if we only go out, you know that, that saying that's often um, misquoted to be for uh, St. Francis of Assisi, which is like, preach the gospel always, but when necessary, and when necessary, use words. He didn't say that. Um, so poor guy, we'll have to correct that in glory, right? Um, but but he, he didn't say that. And, and that's, not a, that's not the gospel anymore because the gospel is an announcement. The gospel is proclamation. The gospel is giving the why behind the what. We absolutely must. We absolutely must share this. And I think that's exactly why Peter does this because even in the margins, church, we still have a voice. We have a voice and we must have a voice. We must declare this. We must announce this. But it has to be coupled with what Peter stresses first, which is that nonverbal piece, that posture of compassion and practicing self-giving love specifically with one another inside the church so that why we get a voice outside the church. All right, so practically, let's shift into practicals now. What does this look like? What does this actually look like? Uh, you, there could be a lot said here. I'm gonna just talk about two things. Two things that we can practice and prioritize as the church, okay? Number one, we need to be fluent in our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of culture. We need to be fluent. We need to be bilingual in how we understand the gospel and how we understand our context, how we understand our culture, okay? So here's what this means. We need to fight to engage an, an ever-changing culture. Culture is always changing with a never-changing gospel. We need to fight to understand culture enough ask the right questions of culture, listen long enough to culture in order to then proclaim the gospel, okay? But it has to be both. And you've heard me speak on this lots over the last year, especially. If we only focus on culture, we can lose the gospel. And if we only focus on the gospel and ignore culture, we will be ineffective on mission. And so this is about, and it is a delicate balance that honestly, we're never gonna nail it, okay? We just aren't. Um, and that's okay. We can just humbly admit that. But every generation must fight. How do we communicate in language that is going to be received by our culture the, the unchanging beauty of the gospel? How does, what does that actually look like? And I would say today, we need to really understand that the gospel is not just true, but it's better. We need to show people that it's not just true, but that it's, it's, it's the best, right? Like it is the most satisfying and true definition of all that is beautiful and right and good. So we, we gotta be careful not to just argue about the gospel being true, but actually demonstrate that the gospel is, is better. And it's better than religion, what we can do to kind of muster favor out of God. And it's better than non-religion, what we can do to kind of muster satisfaction out of everything that's not God. It's better than, than all of that. So the gospel's an alternative that, that confronts things about culture, but then invites culture to experience the goodness of that. And I would say that the gospel needs to become our mother tongue, okay? And really quick, we don't have time, we're running out of time as usual, right? Um, but but, but here, here's what I would say, that the gospel needs to be our mother tongue in the sense that if you can only quote Bible verses and not, you don't know how to actually apply it to a whole worldview, you're not fluent in the gospel yet. If you're not able to apply the gospel to sexuality 
and finances and money and career choice and politics and uh, all of those things. If you're not able to, it means that you need to grow in your understanding of the gospel and then being fluent in it so that every area of life has the gospel shedding light on those things. That we need to actually apply the gospel, not just tell people about it. And, and I think that that's, you know, we understand evangelism. When you say evangelism, you know, I don't know, I get, I immediately get like a pit in my stomach sometimes because you think about evangelism as whatever, whatever weird view of evangelism we end up having, right? But I would just say that, that evangelism truly is learning how to speak about Jesus that persuades someone to consider Jesus. That true evangelism is speaking about Jesus in a way that persuades someone to consider Jesus. Doesn't mean that the goal is conversion, like we can do that anyway, right? Or, or church attendance, that's not the goal of evangelism. The goal of evangelism is, is gospel consideration. That we would be used in some way, in our limited capacities, to speak about the gospel with the people in our sphere of influence in a way that allows them to at least consider the gospel. And church, I'll tell you, evangelism has changed drastically because of this post-Christian shift, but we haven't noticed yet. Because the goal of evangelism for so many is still evangelize, do outreach, so that what? They'll attend our thing, right? They'll, they'll come to our thing. They'll come to our event. They'll, they'll attend the church as if that's what the church is. But we need to shift our thinking because as exiles, we don't have the benefit of people even wanting to come to our thing, right? Like it doesn't matter how cool the thing is or how good the thing is. The come and see, the, the come and, and be with us as the church, that, that ship has sailed, church. That's not the default mode of our culture anymore. As a matter of fact, they don't want to touch the church with a 10-foot pole. So if evangelism, the goal of evangelism is get you from out there in here, we're still, we're still functioning as if Christendom is alive and well. But as exiles, we see evangelism as an opportunity to bring the gospel into areas where it currently is not. So that what? Missional outposts and beauty and, and, and the gospel will be displayed out there and move people towards Christ. Not as a means to an end to get them to our thing. Now, don't hear me saying what I'm not. That doesn't mean I'm anti-invitation. And it doesn't mean I'm anti-church gathering or that I'm anti-people coming to church gathering. I love that. I want that. But I would say that we need to be honest and do the hard work of relationally and evangelistically being the church before we expect people to come and be a part of the church. Okay, that, that's, that's the point. Uh, John Perkins uh, was an amazing, amazing man, African-American uh, theologian, civil rights activist. He said this about evangelism. I still think it rings so true. The job of an evangelist is to connect God's good news with people's deep and true yearnings. Evangelism isn't just about arguing and convincing people that the gospel is true, but it's about showing them that the gospel is better. And so you and I as the church, you and I as individuals have a responsibility to show people that the gospel is true and prove that the gospel is better. Okay, so, so when we talk about evangelism, 
when we talk about this idea of being kind of, you know, fluent in both gospel and culture, what we're really talking about is a fancy word called contextualization, right? Contextualization, meaning what we're trying to say is that the goal of mission, the goal of evangelism, the goal of cultural engagement at all isn't relevance or acceptance, but it's, it's about consideration, that we would do things in a way that would allow our culture to consider the gospel. That's, that's contextualization. And Paul does this more brilliantly than any of us ever will. Um, and this again, homework for you, but check out Acts 17 this week. The book of Acts chapter 17. Paul's conversation in, in Athens, it's so brilliant that you kind of just like, you don't really know what to do with it. You're like, wow, that was a very Paul thing to do, right? I can't do that. <laughs> but what's brilliant about it is what Paul is doing is he's having a conversation with people outside of the church and he's not quoting the Bible as his thing first and foremost. He's having a conversation about cultural things and then bringing the gospel to bear on those things. So it's very intriguing that Paul quotes Epimenides, who's a mythical Greek poet, and he quotes Eratus, who's a Greek, which is a Greek worship song to Zeus, who is a god that doesn't exist, okay? So, so Paul quotes both of those texts before he quotes the Bible. Why? Because he builds a bridge to bring people to an understanding of the gospel and repentance, so church, just hear me. We'll talk about this ne in our next series around scripture. You and I cannot start with the Bible with people who do not recognize the Bible, who do not recognize the Bible as authoritative. Don't hear me saying that we don't use the Bible ultimately to form and shape all of the things that we go out and do. Absolutely, it is our rule. It is our rule of faith, it absolutely is. But if that is the only thing we know how to do, kind of like parroting, just repeating Bible to people who don't recognize that the Bible is anything worth even considering. We haven't yet done the hard work of understanding the culture and understanding people relationally to earn that right to then authoritatively speak with the word of God, okay? So, so that, that's, that's really it. It's evangelism is this, we're gonna, we gotta do the hard work of relationally compassionately being with people instead of just standing back and quoting authoritative Bible verses at them if they don't recognize God's word to be authoritative. We gotta do better than that. We have to do more than that. And I find it lazy for us to just do that. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. It does. We know that. We need that. We're shaped by God's word. But they're not. And we need to do the hard work of consideration, bringing them into a, a position to consider, consider this. Okay, that's, that's number one. And last, number two, this kind of posture needs to show up in radical hospitality. Radical hospitality. I know with hospitality, we sometimes think like smiling a lot or just like Martha Stewart making muffins or whatever Martha Stewart makes. Um, but, but hospitality truly in the Greek, it's beautiful. It actually means love of a stranger. It actually means love of, of the other. It's a movement towards otherness. Why is that important for us? Well, because as exiles, if we know our identity as exiles, guess what we are? We're other. We're strangers. 
And so if there's anyone who should know how to love strangers well, it's the church. It's the church in exile. And how do we do that? Radical hospitality. Radical hospitality inside the church, like Jesus said, loving one another, being compassionate for one another, but then also that trickles outside the church to the other, the stranger out there. And this has always been God's call for the church. And it's always been God's call for Israel as a covenant people before that. That God is always after the outsider. Always. Leviticus 19, 34 says, Treat the stranger who is among you as a native. See that? Treat the stranger who is among you as a native. Love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Love that. God's heart's always been for the outsider by using a people who knows what it's like to be rescued and redeemed because they too were outsiders. They're outside of the grace of God. They're outside of God's forgiveness and love and now they're inside it. So our goal of hospitality is to open up our lives, open up our homes, open up our hands, open up our, our checkbooks, open up our entire life holistically so that outsiders would be loved so that one day they would be insiders. Amen? That's the goal. That's the goal of hospitality because we have a God who is hospitable. We have a God who loves us despite us and welcomes us home. So I'm not saying don't invite people to things. I'm not saying don't speak about the gospel. I'm not saying any of those things for sure. But what I am saying is that we need to change where and how we invite people. We don't stop inviting people. We need to change where we invite people to. Instead of inviting people to church events and services, we need to start by inviting people to our homes and our dinner tables and our sofas and our porches. That's what hospitality is going to look like for us in this cultural moment. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and I think I've quoted it before for us as a church, but I'm just going to read one thing that she says, and then we'll, we'll close. Listen to what she says. Our post-Christian neighbors, notice that. Our post-Christian neighbors, she's, she's acknowledged that we're there, right? Need to hear, see, taste, and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbors in prayer, food, friendship, childcare, dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. Radically ordinary hospitality means this, that God promises to put the lonely families, lonely in families, and he intends to use your house as living proof. Love that. You gotta understand that with the decline of church attendance and the pressures to remove the Christian message from the public square, guess where we are gonna have free speech? On our couch. At our dinner table on our porch. So for us right now, like fighting for our voice in the public square, uh, we, the only reason why we, we feel like that, that's something that we should do is because of Christendom. The church in the majority of the world doesn't have a voice in the public square. And so for us right now, I'm not saying we don't fight for that. I'm not saying we don't have highly gifted people in the public square who love Jesus speaking about the gospel. We do. Praise God for that. But for the ordinary hospitality that we're called to, we're gonna have free speech on our porches. We're gonna have free speech on our sofas. We're gonna have free speech at the dinner table. 
And we need to understand that that is where gospel work gets done. That that's where evangelism can happen. That that's where loving one another happens. That that's where compassion happens. And in Matthew 9, Jesus is moved by compassion, it says. I'll just read it real quick. And then I promise we're actually closing. Famous words, eh? Watch this. Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, speaking of Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion upon them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, watch this, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. What this is saying to you and I is that the future of the church is not in the barn, but it's in the field. Future of the church is not in here, getting people to this. The future of the church is, is out there. It's being workers in God's field. It's praying to God, pleading with God for harvest and fruit. But us being fruitful and multiplying. Us as exiles thriving. Us going out and, and living this out to the best of our ability by the empowerment of the gifts that God has given us. And so if, if we build it, they will come. That's not true anymore. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to go get to work. And if the fields are ripe for harvest, if we're ready to pull our sleeves up and get to work, there is going to be, church, listen, there is going to be a massive amount of work to be done, especially as COVID-19 kind of starts to go down to a slow, a slow burn. There is gonna be so many needs that the church has an opportunity to meet. And yes, it means we're healthy. We gotta be healthy for sure. It means that we gotta meet each other's needs first, amen. But there are gonna be so many people hurting. There are gonna be so many people disillusioned. There's gonna be so many people wrestling with marital and relational and emotional and mental and financial things coming out of this. And I think that that's our field right now, that we gotta start to prepare and look and see and say like, what can we do? That, That we're not just gonna like invite people into this thing, but that we gotta go out and love and be compassionate and be hospitable. Our main challenge isn't that we don't have enough workers. It's that we've spent a lot of time working at the wrong thing. And COVID-19 and and kind of the reality of, of our life right now is giving us an amazing opportunity to do that well. Um, I read a cultural anthropologist, Margaret Mead, she's old and dead a long time ago, 19th century. She said, never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. Indeed, It's the only thing that ever has. (laughs) So us as a creative minority, us as as a strange people, us as the minority with a different ethic and a different set of values rooted in a different kingdom, what could we do? A lot, a lot. And that's the beauty of the Christian mission. And it's our responsibility to see the culture that we inhabit to see the world that we inhabit, to see our cities and our communities and our neighborhoods and our neighbors as, as an opportunity to display non-verbally the beauty of the gospel, but also proclaim the beauty of it verbally. So for, for me, my heart this week, for, for us as we've worked through this and prayed through this, for us as a church, I, 
I want us to just be careful to guard against going on a cultural witch hunt, right? Just kind of like, it's amazing how often Christians will sit back and criticize culture for being dark. Like being mad at darkness for being dark. It's like, but it's, it's dark. Like it's darkness. That's what darkness does. It's, it's dark, right? Like, and we're called to be light. And the smallest light pushes away darkness. And to be salt and light, it's to not sit back and criticize culture, but it's to actually move into, be fruitful, to cultivate life, to seek the peace of the city, to seek beauty in the midst of a culture that doesn't know where to look for it. That's the call of the church. The world is gonna be the world. It is, always has been, always will be. And because the world is gonna be the world, the church needs to be the church. Amen? Let me pray for us and then we'll worship and celebrate exactly that. Father, you're a missionary God. None of us know you and have tasted and seen that you're good without you pursuing us, without you loving enemies, chiefly us, loving us past us, loving us despite us. I just pray that now, especially as many of us are experiencing different challenges, that we would suffer well, that we would persevere well, that that spirit, you would fill us with what we need to continue to be faithful and to fight through some of the, the added challenges that we're all kind of feeling right now in different ways, that we would be faithful. That we would be faithful to the God of the harvest and that fruit would, would come out of that, but because of you because of the work that you're calling us to and you're the only one that can make it fruitful. So we just wanna give all of that back to you. Everything that we have as a church at Reach Montreal, that it would be yours, that we would steward it, that we'd be faithful with it. Not for us, but for the good of, of Montreal, for the good of the West Island, for the good of all of our different boroughs and communities, that we would be a light and that we would be a city <laughs> that's set on a hill to display your goodness and your love and your beauty. We thank you and ask all these things in Jesus' name.